What do composers Monteverdi, Gluck, and Offenbach all have in common? Find out on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. The answer? All of these composers have written operas based on the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. In this podcast episode, join Guild lecturer Matthew Timmermans as he chronologically traces how Greek myths have been adapted by putting them in their historical context and by comparing and contrasting various performances. All right, so the overview of this lecture that we're going to do right now, first we're going to go through the birth of opera and Greek tragedy. And then we're going to go through three examples in a closer view, which is going to be Monteverdi's L'Orfeo, Gluck's Orfeo e Eurydice, and then Offenbach's Orfeo aux Enfers. So, the birth of opera. Where did it all happen? How did it come to be? Well, according to 19th century uh, historians, and this includes Wagner, opera was born in Florence in 1600. It was then exported to other places like France and England. So, there's a little bit of skepticism that can be had towards this assumption. There are many, many names we've learned of what opera could have been. It wasn't necessarily called opera. It could have been, could have been called an attione in, music, in musica, a festa teatrale, a drama musicale, a favola regia. Are there enough names for you yet? The point is, there's many, and the words opera do not always show up. So there's a whole bunch of possibilities, maybe even 100 years earlier, that we have no idea if it was opera or not. Because at the end of the day, opera generally is a combination of several idioms, including music and drama. However, having said that, I'm going to put my skepticism aside for a moment and note that there was a paradigm shift that happened at 1600, which Wagner did note as well. So we'll give him some credit, OK? At this time, Neoplatonism was in fashion. So in his, in, well, in Plato's theories, music was central to them, particularly the harmony of the cosmos, this idea that things would resonate in certain ways depending on the intervals, and they could create certain feelings within you. They could be good feelings, bad feelings. The point, well, the idea was to have good feelings, but there was a bunch of possibilities. As I mentioned earlier, monody was preferred, so we wanted a single vocal line or singer that we could hear the text, so it's usually syllabic, and then there was a very simple accompaniment that heightened whatever they were saying. And the idea behind this was the emphasis of the vocal expression, as opposed to polyphonic music. So I've already given you guys an idea of what monody is, but now I kind of keep throwing these words around, like madrigals, which madrigals are generally polyphonic. Um, and so I thought I would play something for you so that you can get an idea of this in your ear. Now this is a piece by Monteverdi, who is one of the um, composers we're going to be looking at first. And this is what the opera composers at first were avoiding, this sort of it's not cacophony, but there was just too much going on. It was too luxurious, and so they were moving away from this. I don't know if they were saying it was not beautiful necessarily, but the point was we wanted simplicity. But here, 
is something else. you might have got the idea that it's kind of hard to hear the words, right? I mean, they were saying the same words over and over again, which was the Latin text, but the point being, what people, when they started opera at least, they really wanted you to hear what they were saying and be moved by it with the addition of music. Now, where that's gone with Wagner is a bit different now, perhaps, but nonetheless, we're going back to the beginning. So, what about Greek tragedy in this picture? If we now know where opera came from, where does Greek tragedy fit in? So a scholar by the name of Gelamo May, in his Demodis, uh, which was in the 1560s, he asserted that Greek tragedy was apparently entirely sung. So now we have this connection where oh, here is a previous form that was about a, had a plot, had characters, and oh, it seems that it was possibly sung, and so it must be musical. So we go on, and other scholars now have points of view also about it. So there's also Vincenzo Galilei, and in his Diagolo della Musica Antica e della Moderna uh, from 1581, he connects opera to Aristotle's poetics. So now we're really drawing on a fundamental name to Greek drama to justify why opera should also be sung. So the claim was that in the poetics that elaborate stage design, or deus es machina, uh, these were elements that were understood to be ancient and integral to Greek drama. So naturally, opera has to have this as well. And then there was also the catharsis debate. So I just want to take a moment to talk a little bit more about this, because it might be a term that some people haven't heard of. I know I didn't. Um, and so in his Poetics, Aristotle tells us about our ability to empathize and how this creates an intense emotion that he calls catharsis, which is a kind of purification for him. So it's more than just an emotion. It's a, a way that we connect with ourselves. So. With the Florentine Camerata, things luckily were more multidisciplinary then. So we did have philosophers, but along with them, we had a lot of practicing musicians who were in the same area where they were discussing these ideas. And so the modern musicians there decided to apply their ideas to music. And so what they did is they took modern art, um, musical forms as well as dramatic forms, such as songs, dances, and madrigals. And then there was also pastoral drama, which pastoral drama often told stories about nymphs, as well as shepherds and half-gods, so the first Florentine ex uh, experiments were in the Florentine court. And so one of the first libretti was, was written by Ottavio Rinucci. And this is where we see the Orpheus myth suddenly appearing all over the place. And, but actually, the first one was called Eurydice. And this was also set by Perry, who was apparently a, composed a lot of operas and was very popular, although we have very little left in order to hear his music, unfortunately. So Perry developed what we now know as recitative. So I'll go over this a little more just to make it clear. So it was called then Recitatar Cantando, kind of like opera. It had lots of names, but was generally a similar sort of idea. And this was the bearer of the drama, right? We have a, a something that's sung that's rather speech-like, almost like musical recitation, like I say there. And this bears most of the plot and the drama. I'm going to play this example from Eurydice, now that you actually know what Eurydice is, by Perry. We're going to play this again just to give you an idea of what monody or recitative. Recitative cantando is. <laughs> <laughs> 
So where, how does Orpheus and Eurydice enter this? Uh, so a number of these early exper experiments, as you've noted, were inspired by or the Orpheus myth. And a lot of scholars have kind of thought about why. No one's really written down exactly, at least of those creators, why that exactly is. But we can surmise perhaps that's why, well, Orpheus was a legendary poet, so he's got one part of the combination that is opera. Um, his magical singing was very important and apparently could do ma wonderful things, such as drowning out the sounds of the sirens who would lure men to their death uh, using their voices. Um, he also was able to go rescue his beloved by using his singing voice. That's I, it inspired a lot of writers about it, clearly. And even after his dismemberment, uh, if anyone knows the original myth of Orpheus, which does not have a happy ending like the Gluck version or many of the operatic treatments, um, he was dismembered in uh, a Bacchic orgy, which is kind of a wonderful way to go, maybe. Um, <laughs> but the point is, in the legend, his voice combines with the rivers and the trees, and that's why we have sort of this, the, the music or the sound that the wind creates. Because um, a lot of early Greek myths are about explaining the, the phenomena we see around us in nature. But what did this actually mean for sound? So what did this sound like, and, and how did... Um, our early composers and creators translate this into something like opera. So the most important part about uh, this story, particularly the Orpheus myth, was these moments of performance, these moments when he would, for example, go and quell the Furies in the underworld in order to go and save Eurydice. Uh, so the first one we're going to look at is Monteverdi's L'Orfeo, which I just wanted to note that this is actually called a favola in musica. So there's no word opera here. Right? Uh, but yet, we do consider, many consider, and for a long time considered this the first opera until we discovered some of Perry's works. Um, and something important that I want to note, remember before when I said a lot of our history is based on what we can find and what we uh, have left in order to trace this past, it's important to note that Monteverdi was famous, was the f actually one of the first composers who was famous before um, he composed opera. So he was famous in other forms like madrigals and other songs at that time. And so as a result, when he composed opera, no one thought, oh, let's just throw that in the trash, right? They kept it. And so now as a result of that choice of the archive, we now trace it quite easily back to him. So Orpheo was sung by a tenor. But you may be surprised to know that many, if not all, of the female roles were actually sung by castrati. Um, so, and I will tell you what castrati are, I promise. I love this quote because it's very good. Uh, but castrati are... At the, at the time, there was a tradition that sort of petered out in the 19th century uh, and started to see as abhorrent, abhorrent sorry, of castrating um, men when they were very young, before their voices had changed, in order that their voice could say, stay higher. And originally, this was done not for opera. Uh, it was done in the churches because women were not allowed to sing in the churches um, at that time. However, like most things that happened in the church, it left the church and became very popular elsewhere and became this wonderful practice that happened in opera and but i do love this quote by ab marx and so i am going to read it to you and so he kind of he's talking about uh how their bodies would change because even though they're castrati when they were castrated sorry their actual physicality would change and a, there's a lot of mythos around who, around the castrati and what they looked like did their organs work could they have children um and it's a great it's a great reading but anyway here we go by means of the operation performed on castrati, the development of the vocal organs, more accurately speaking the larynx, was arrested. 
It is this development, beginning in puberty, that converts the discant, or the alto voice of a boy, into a tenor, or bass voice. But the further maturation of the body went on as usual. The chest and lungs of the boy attain the power and flexibility that they have in men. The vocal cavity attained the size and resonance of the mature male. Male force resounds with utmost violence within vocal organs that have remained boyish. In comparison to a boy's voice, a superior increase of volume is obtained when this sound enters the mature vocal cavity. This is the reason for the greater power of the castrato voice and for its violently penetrating quality. No female alto is, in terms of vocal quality, capable of replacing the castrato. Now, I will also note that what happened is that when things were kept boyish, correct? So a lot of these men would be um, chunkier in certain areas. They would also, for some reason, get very, very tall and have really long arms. So they looked kind of like aliens to people, but very exciting aliens. Um, but there was also a whole, they were very attractive. There was a, um, I don't, there was a, a culture of women being very attracted to the boyish quality um, of men at, in the 1600s through the 1700s and into the 18th century. Um, that is not necessarily something we have now when we have Brad Pitt on a movie or something like that where there's a thorough masculinity. So it's something to just keep in mind about we think it's alien now, but maybe it wasn't for them. Um, all right, I'm back from my digression. So what did L'Orfeo sound like? So as I mentioned, it has dances, it has madrigals, it has solo songs, it has instrumental interludes. There's a lot of recitatore can, uh, cantando, like in the Perry operas that I mentioned. And now I want to focus on a specific section in Act Two of Orfeo, just to give you a little taste. So this is the moment when Orfeo laments uh, Eurydice's death and vows to descend to hell in order to bring her back. And so this moment is sung, as I mentioned, in a free speech-based rhythm, which is the recitatore cantando, with no obvious melody and no little sense of periodic structure. So a periodic structure would be like in a pop song, how we hear the beginning part of the song, and then it repeats right after it. Um, I'm trying to think of a, anyway, a periodic structure is a, when a melody is repeated in order to give a sense of symmetry in a piece, but it might come at a, with a different cadence at the end in order to give a more of a sense of finality at the end of it. And so also, as we've noted, the vocal line traces the natural intonation of the words. And something interesting to note when you're listening to this clip, often because there is this uh, attention to the detail of the words with the vocal line, the words will often trace the symbolic meaning of, um, sorry, the music will trace the symbolic meaning of the words. So for example, in this one, you'll hear that when Orfeo is describing going to hell, or for example, talking about the gods, um, or, so when he's going to hell, the vocal line will go downwards. Like uh, the, actual, um, the actual pitch will go downwards, and then the line will move upwards when he talks about heaven, are examples. There are also, I mean, there's not in this, but this is a similar case to remember when I mentioned the heartbeat. So there's a very literal translation into music of what is being said. Anyway, we're going to listen to this scene from Orfeo, which is this month. This is our first Orfeo. I realize now we're going to have several. So Monteverdi's Orfeo, just to be clear. <laughs> Thank you. 
So now one of the maybe more interesting questions going along this idea that I've been saying how this is very different from how we watch opera today and what it was made for was a very specific audience that we might be quite foreign to. So what did it look like? So operas at this time, as I mentioned, were expensive like they are now and as a result when they were first being performed were often done as lavish court spectacles. Uh, this being they were done in, I mean in court they would be actually done within the court itself. Uh, so L'Orfeo, though, was actually done, was performed in private, in a private room in the Duke uh, of Mantua's palace. And so what did this mean musically? Well, this means that every word could be heard. You'd be very close to the singers. There was no separation of the lip of a stage and then your chairs. You would actually, it would be just performed on the floor in a room in front of you. Um, and so every expression, like I, I've been noting these minute expressions that have been um, of the words that we are, might be lost perhaps in a theater like the Met that is so large. But for them, it probably would have been heard being so close to the people singing. Um, and so the last thing I said is every musical variation would also have been heard, which all of these points were essential to this idea of Greek tragedy being in, uh, in opera, which was the idea that uh, you had to be moved or, es or, or you know, taken out of your body by the experience of hearing this text plus the music. So although the Florentine Camerata emphasized the importance of the word, L'Orfeo actually includes a lot of virtuosic displays, even though they were saying, we don't want that, right? We want it all to be syllabic, so you can only hear the text. We want none of these showy moments. And yet at the end of Orfeo, we do have this duet between Orfeo and Apollo. And this is the moment after Orfeo fails to um, bring Eurydice back to life. And Apollo is basically like, well, you should come up and live in the heavens with me. And so in saying that, they sing this duet, which has lots of runs in coloratura uh, in talking about where they're, I suppose, perhaps reflecting where they're about to go.
I assume you got the part where the duet suddenly started and we went from recitare uh, cantando into lots of runs, which it seemed also the singer was a bit overwhelmed by the amount of runs he had to do as well. <laughs> um, so another thing I want to note, I did mention that opera obviously was not always um, confined to the court. There did become uh, a public place where people could uh, consume the art form. And in talking about this sort of uh, argument that we're going to see throughout this series about whether we need text versus music, what's more important. Uh, I will note that these kinds of virtuosic displays, these lots of these runs, were very, very popular when opera became public. And so what we're going to notice is that when we get to our next composer, we're going to jump a century, and that this balance between music and poetry that we see is a little bit different in the court spectacle versus in a public opera is going to be reevaluated again with our next composer. And that is going to be uh, Gluck, who wrote Orfeo ed, uh, ed Euridice. And so this premiered um, about a, more, than, well, more than a century later, in 1762. Uh, and so actually during that time, what you is surprising to note is that there were very few Orpheus operas um, that appeared, which is possibly that people were becoming more interested in the, uh, as I mentioned, very complex plots arising about, you know, mistresses and the servants and so and so so forth, which I don't think Orpheus really suited. So perhaps it went away for a bit before this revival happened. And when we suddenly have Gluck come in, we have this call for revolution. He is absolutely, him and his librettist are just tired of what opera has been doing. It is too showy, it's too over the top, it's frankly unrealistic, I can't hear the words, I do not like it. And so what was complained about by Gluck in addition to some of his other, uh, his, his other contemporaries. One of them was also the formulaic and complicated plots. So as I mentioned, people loved a complicated plot at that time. They really, they wanted a lot to be going on, and then suddenly, a hundred years later, no one wanted that to happen. They didn't want these very obvious plots. And some examples are the enlightened king, the confused hero, the spurned lover, the evil plotter. Mistaken identities were very popular. And people just couldn't deal with them anymore <laughs> at this time. Um, another issue was that the plot was often in recitative. And so the, re the break between recitative and, and an aria was a lot clearer than what we saw in L'Orfeo, right? It was kind of, I mean, that one last aria is pretty obvious. But otherwise, when we heard Orfeo talking about going down to, um, to get Eurydice, that could be considered partially, I mean, it is recitative cantando, but it's also gets the closest to what we now consider an aria. But you know, it, there wasn't a big break between the two. You couldn't notice when one started and the other did, right? But in Handel's operas, which so I mean, one of the key figures between this time was Handel, there was a really clear break between recitative, which was done with some sort of harpsichord, uh, or some sort of plucked instrument, is what I'm trying to say, accompanying it, 
And then there was the aria, which then the full orchestra would come in and also the singer would all of a sudden have a more of a melody, you might say, rather than necessarily a syllabic sort of speech-like thing. So it was very obvious. And what would happen is that people, you know, the recitative would happen. We can have our lunch during the recitative or play some chess. And then, oh my God, the aria is starting. Everyone, shh, shh, let's go listen. And then the singer would, one of the things about arias at, the, at that time was that they were in what we call an ABA structure. So A was one particular melodic fragment. Then there was B, which is the contrasting fragment. And then A comes back, and that's your moment to shine. You've got to show off and change that and add a bunch of coloratura, and everyone's going to love it. Okay. And so again, we have Gluck sort of criticizing this, saying, well, this is just, this is all too excessive. I, I can't do this anymore, um, and I'm going to change opera. Um, and this all, again, comes to this question of realism, right, that I mentioned comes back again and again and again. Um, I did put a little point down here, which is about a lot of this question for realism and where a lot of Gluck's ideas came about this, that he brought to Italy, actually came from a French tradition, which is just an interesting side note because there's always this antagonism between France and Italy because Italy is the place of opera. And then yet Italy would never want to admit that French traditions came and influenced opera and changed it for them. So it's kind of interesting to note that this revolution was heralded in a way by, um, by French tastes. Um, all right. I did want to uh, note another thing that happened at this time is we have this resurgence um, of interest in, of neoclassicism, of interest in these uh, in the theory that was in philosophy was happening at that time as well as the plots. So what is the solution here? Well, now we're coming back to our Greek tragedy. The, the solution is to get back to the simplicity and clarity of, of Greek tragedy and Arist the, Arist the Aristotelian purity of genre or that model is where we want to go. Um, and what's interesting about this is it actually wants to get back to a drama that would move quicker um, and have strong passions and interesting situations which you may not have necessarily thought from that Aristotelian fantasy. And the most importantly, get rid of those subplots. Um, there's too many characters, we need less. So what did this mean musically? Um, what, what I'm saying here, what I'm saying it means musically, I just want to share with you uh, an aria that what, what he's getting at, the arias he's criticizing. So aria texts then, before this revolution happened, were brief, four to eight lines, and as, you, as it was mentioned, a lot of repeated text. Um, and again, the arias were extended by the very repetitions and vocal ornaments that singers would want to do. Because at the end of the day, most of the people were coming for the singers. <laughs> now, this clip that I'm about to play for you, all you have to know is that a castrato is performing in this. And what you're going to see is not only the, the very exciting entrance when he comes down in a carriage, which thrills the audience, and they, they you know, show their approval, they clap, they laugh. Um, but then you're also going to see there's a little bit of a, dr a dramatic uh, uh, fantasy that happens here where uh, the singer stops singing when someone's not paying attention <laughs> and, and, and waits for the people, which is possible. There is some documentation to suggest that that did happen, but there's actually more to suggest that the audiences were even crueler to the singers. So there was quite a relationship that happened there. But what I want you to see is how the audience goes wild over the, um, the, the, the sheer feats of vocal athleticism that this singer does. And it's, a, uh, I think, in some ways, a good imagination of what it might have been like to be at one of these operas with one of these superstars.
Uh, there actually is historical precedent to suggest that this exchange that happened between the singer and the audience actually happened quite often at that time, that there was less of a wall between the stage and the audience that we have now today. So when he threw out his scarf into the audience, there were also planned, there, um, there was, in the 18th century, there was often these planned exchanges between like a, a person of the court who would sit close to the stage and then have one of the characters that they were singing about, I don't know, giving alms to the poor or something. Then the 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 you know the magnanimous uh, person from court on stage would give it to the singer, and it would be this display that the the crowd would presumably go wild for. They loved this sort of cross between the real reality and um, and the sort of fantastic that's happening on stage. Anyway, moving from that, now we're getting to our revolution. Um, so now what we have is we have this reclaimed declamation. So we're getting back to our recitatar cantando beginnings. Um, in both recitative and more radically in arias, right? We're getting rid of all this coloratura. It's just too much. There's too much going on. Um, and so we have now a simpler idiom, and this, as I mentioned before, comes is heavily influenced by France bring, and is coming into Italy to change operatic traditions. Um, and so I want to play for you. This is the famous aria from Act Three of Orfeo and Eurydice by Gluck. And so this is the moment when uh, Orfeo is taking Eurydice out of hell. And she, of course, well, not of course, but in this particular version, she has a lot of agency in the sense that she really wants Orfeo to look at her. And she makes it very difficult for Orfeo uh, to leave hell without doing so because she is, um, she just needs his gaze. I don't know how else to describe it. You'll see from the text. Uh, and when he turns around, of course, she dies. And then he has this very beautiful and deeply moving um, recitative that moves into the aria quite smoothly where he uh, expresses his feelings. So we're just going to listen to that to see the contrast with what we heard previously of our all-star performance.
you might have noticed in that clip that in our original Orfeo with Monteverdi, right, it was a tenor. And in this one, at least, you were noticing in this production that it was a countertenor performing. And in the original production, it was uh, a castrato that performed as Orfeo. And this is interesting because, as I've noted, the castrati were clearly being criticized also by Gluck for being too much. They're too showy, right? This was a, a, a close relation. It was this idea of too much excess was closely related, especially at this time with the castrati. So it is interesting to see that he used one despite that criticism. And this is partially because this figure, which is Gaetano Guendani, is actually, he was very interested in having a different style of what the castrato could do. And he was very interested in having a plainer uh, and more straightforward uh, way to convey the music that could become associated with castrati. Now, something that should be noted is that he was actually very disliked by the British public because he actually refused to bow and repeat arias. Uh, which is something that every singer who was liked, it was essential to basically, uh, you know, c appease your public, shall we say. Uh, and so this is, what, I guess, what I'm trying to get at is how radical it was that a castrato was sort of changing their image. And perhaps that was part of what Gluck was getting at in using a castrato as opposed to a tenor or a mezzo-soprano, which would become traditions that would be used later. Um, I just want to note some of the narrativic dif uh, differences between the Gluck and the Monteverdi quickly. Um, one, in Gluck's Orfeo, Eurydice is dead when the opera begins. And so what, what's interesting here is that unlike the original one, which was more trying to create the signifiers of what opera was, uh, Eurydice here becomes more of a, a, a real blood woman. And that's kind of what I was getting at when I said she has more agency at the end where she's asking Orfeo to turn around. Whereas before, she was kind of seen as this ideal femininity and then also was a signifier for um, the main metaphor of what the plot was about. Another thing to note is that the, we see a, redu a reduction in the amount of people we see in the opera. So a lot of the Apollo is removed. We only have Amor as the one god that's surviving. And this is, again, moving toward this idea of opera becoming more, more simple, but it's interesting to note that that's coming from an inspiration of what Greek drama was supposed to be, right? These people assumed Greek drama was supposed to be simple, straightforward, fast, to the point, and moving. And so this is a, a, another re, sort of reimagination, I guess you could say, or reimagineering, as people like to say with the movies now. Um, and the last thing I want to note that I'll sort of summarize from the bottom here is that the opera becomes a lot more psychological in the sense of moving into the interior of what the characters are thinking rather than just representing a plot about a myth that they're supposed to show about gods and gods and then give a moral at the end. The opera Orphée aux Enfers. So this is an opera by a composer named Jacques Offenbach, who, um, well, he was a German, uh, and as usual, the Germans came to France. And, um, and so what this opera is, is it's basically uh, a satire of the Orpheus myth. And a very funny satire, I must say. So if you ever have the opportunity to go see this, uh, please do. It is it's an absolute delight. Uh, but some of, the, some of the strings that I wanted to tie here with the topic of Greek drama is that at this time when Offenbach started creating operas, there, there was a, a strict idea of purity of genre, especially in France. But at that time, there was an institution called the Opéra, and that's where you have grand opera. So think like 
well, don't think Carmen, actually, but think things like Meyer Beer's Grand Opera, Don Carlos, for example, by Verdi, these large operas that are completely sung through. That was at the Opera, is the, where you would go see it. Then there was the Opera Comique, and the Opera Comique, yes, it means opera comic, but it didn't necessarily mean it was funny. So Carmen, for example, by Bizet, was actually premiered at the Opera Comique, and originally what it, what it meant to be performed at the Opera Comique is that you had spoken text between the arias. And then now we've added people have, when it went to the opera, they had to musicalize that text because you couldn't have spoken text at the opera. And so what I'm trying to get at this is that there's this connection here towards Aristotelian purity, this idea of th that things have to have very certain aspects of them that make them in their most ideal form. And what um, Jacques Offenbach came and did, he created something that was called opera bouffe, which was more like it's a, a serious type of comedy in the sense of it's actually a comedy as opposed to opera comique. I know these words get confusing because they all laugh, overlap, but the point is opera comique doesn't necessarily have to be funny, while an opera bouffe is, and an opera bouffe also has spoken text, and then it has more, um, the pieces are more uh, like, a, what's the word I'm looking for? There'll be genres that you might experience in everyday music making, like dance numbers and things like that. So it's kind of like, I mean, it's, it was a forerunner basically for operetta, if everyone knows what that is, was coming from here in France. Um, anyway, so I'm just saying that's a, an interesting connection towards how Offenbach might be connected to this idea of Greek drama that we're, we're discussing. Um, why is Orpheus such an interesting choice for Offenbach? Well, the fact that he's making fun of the figure that has heralded several revolutions and also in a way began opera, at least to everyone's knowledge in the 19th century, including Wagner, I will add, is really, uh, as I say here, a deliberate middle-class slap at the aristocrats here. Um, and because all of a sudden, now he's going to make this all of the frivolous excess and humor that he can into this piece that is supposed to be the epitome of seriousness in opera. So. Now let me tell you the plot of Orphée aux Enfers, because it's absolutely delightful. So Orpheus in this one is no longer a good musician. He is a musical hack violinist. And in fact, several times, as we'll see when he comes in, he plays excerpts from uh, Gluck's Orfeo e Diodidice in order to literally stick his nose up, or, or Offenbach, that is, stick his nose to Gluck, because many people knew that piece. It was very famous in France. Um, Eurydice no longer likes Orfeo. She really doesn't want to be near him at all. And in fact, she's having an affair with her neighbor. And so it's actually by mistake that she dies due to Orpheus because he's trying to kill the neighbor. And then it turns out she's in the neighbor's fields doing whatnot. I mean, in this prediction, it's pretty explicit in what she's doing with him. But anyway, she ends up getting bitten by a snake as a result. So the neighbor actually, it turns out, is this man called Aristeus, which is actually Pluto, the god of the underworld, in disguise. And so he's very happy about the fact that she's dead because, well, now I can take her to the underworld. And so, but actually she's also happy about it too because she hates this guy named Orpheus. In the end, Orpheus also is very happy about this predicament because he's like, well, thank goodness, I don't have to deal with her anymore. But unfortunately, there's this character called public opinion which is supposed to represent the good morals by which we're supposed to stand by. And she says, no, 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 no. You need to go after your wife and take her back from the underworld because you're supposed to love her and cherish her for all time. And so that is the beginning of the plot that we're, uh, the mess that is going to unfold before us. So one of the really, one of the parts that I find extremely humorous about this opera 
is the way the portrayal of the gods, which are normally, as we've seen in the other one, for example, Apollo was portrayed very seriously in the other one with his coloratura, and they're normally, and Amor also in the Orfeo and Eurydice is taken very seriously. Here they are not, which is delightful. So we go up to, in, in the second um, scene, we go up to heaven, or I guess whatever the Greek version of heaven would be necessarily in this case. Um, and we find that Jupiter is among the gods, and he's complaining. The first scene, basically what happens is a bunch of the gods are coming back up to heaven after sleeping with their lovers down on Earth. And then he's basically complaining that, okay, you guys, you have to stop doing these really bad things that are making us look terrible. Um, but of course, all they say is, but that's really ironic because you've been one of the worst of us at doing that. And so they all get really mad. And so what happens is because they're fed up with this hypocrisy, they start to lead a revolt. Um, which is ridiculous to begin with because when we first meet all of them, they're asleep and they don't do anything all day. So it's the most movement we get from them all act. Now, what ends up happening is that conveniently at this time, Orfeo, um, of course, is going to come up to heaven because public opinion is saying you have to get the help of the gods so you can go down and get your wife who you've just lost. And Jupiter sees this as a, a point, as a moment to basically distract the gods from what they're revolting about and saying, well, let's go and watch this happen instead and maybe that will entertain you enough to not dislike me anymore. Basically, that's where we're at in the gods. He's coming up. He's followed behind him by public opinion in her very ironic and luxurious fur coat with her. And um, constantly when he's bemoaning, she's going to push him on. And then we're going to see Jupiter agree to go with him to the underworld in order to retrieve his wife. <laughs> so in case none of you caught it, that's, that's Gluck that's being performed right now.
So of course the point here is poking fun uh, at how the gods are normally portrayed in being the sort of you know magnanimous. So now I just wanted to focus because I was mentioning before that a lot of as you can see the, the melodies are very catchy in the music that's being performed. Perhaps unlike Orfeo or so, there we go again. Perhaps unlike Gluck's Orfeo or the Orfeo before. It's not so much about evoking your emotions through um, uh, the, the, the synonymous with uh, the way that it fuses with the words so much as literally just getting your feet tapping because it's some sort of dance rhythm. Um, and so now I want to take you to the fourth act just so you know what happens. Uh, so in the fourth and final act, uh, they have a bacchanal in the underworld, uh, which of course again brings us back to this connection with um, Greek tragedy, which was originally done for uh, Dionysus. Uh, and so now they're having a feast in honor of the god of wine. Um, and so Orpheus comes down there to claim Eury uh, Eurydice. Uh, but of course, and now it turns out actually that uh, Pluto is also tired with her and finds her out to be a terrible nag. Um, so he's also okay with getting rid of her at this point. And so now we have the twist that we normally know from the Orpheus myth, which is where she, uh, Orpheus of course has to leave and she has to not, or he has to not turn around and look at her in order to escape the underworld. But what happens is that Jupiter, of course, has now, at this point, uh, has begun an affair with Eurydice, despite his previous um, denial uh, in front of his, his fellow gods. And so what he ends up doing is he throws a thunderbolt into the rear of Orpheus so that he'll turn around and look at uh, Eurydice. And then what happens is instead of going to the underworld, though, he ends up um, turning uh, Eurydice into a bug so that he can turn, because in the previous act, they had a duet where they were both transformed, or he was transformed as a bug, and now they're both can turn into the bug and have all the love affairs they want. And Eurydice at first is upset because she's a bug, and then she realizes, eh, I'm okay with it, because I don't have to go back to Orpheus. Um, and so what happens at the end here is probably some of the most famous music from this piece, if anyone knows it, it's the famous Can-Can that um, you'll all know, but probably maybe don't even know where it's from. And what happens at the end, they've already, during their, their feast, they performed it. But as we're going to watch it play out as public opinion once again um, says what should be happening, but that's not what ends up happening. Uh, and then they will dance the can-can, and it brings a show-stopping end to the performance. So we'll play that, and I'll give you some of my final thoughts.
Um, so just a little bit about the can-can. So I mean, number one, I'm sure as all of you may know, it's a fast-paced dance. Uh, but I, what I didn't actually know about it is that it came from North Africa in the 1830s. Um, and by the 1850s, it had become one of the most popular dance idioms in France at the time. And it was being done in all of the halls in the very typical dance that you would have assumed with the very typical outfits you would also assume. So I, I did have some thoughts about connecting Offenbach and Greek drama. And I was thinking about how the, how the curtain came down uh, all, and Offenbach all, all, usually in this sort of dance idiom or this moment that gets our feet really tapping or the show-stopping number. And in the ways that may not be the inward contemplation that Aristotle was intending when he was talking about you know, fusing poetry and music, but at the same time, this idea that it creates this bodily motion with us or still really gets our body involved in the humor as well as the enjoyment of the piece, I think could be another answer perhaps to Greek drama in the 19th century. Maybe not. That is my assumption or attempted justification for you. And then the last thing I wanted to note was that Offenbach's farces, as you may have noted, are political satires. And they're, they're very good political satires. And in some ways, Greek tragedy, which is something where with Medea we start to see uh, th this battle between what, it's, what is right or what is the way that women should be in society, it's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting to have another sort of criticism, and maybe in a humorous way, which is different, um, coming from this particular operetta. That was Guild lecturer and audience favorite Matthew Timmermans discussing the fascinating topic of Greek drama and opera. Make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera Guild on all your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date on all things opera. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and thank you for listening.